Hello and welcome to Scran. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine. This week, I took a tour of the newly opened Glenlivet Visitor Centre in Speyside and spoke to Master Distiller Alan Winchester. I was also joined on Zoom by Glen Murray's Ian Allen to discuss whisky tourism and the Malt Whisky Trail. Alan Winchester has worked in whisky all his career, from the Cooperage to Master Distiller at the Glenlivet. Alan joined me on site at the distillery to chat whisky history, smuggling, working with the National Trust and his thoughts on the new visitor centre, where he features in video form. He explained that the name Glenlivet became synonymous with quality and that Glenlivet was once used to describe the style of whisky we'd now know as Speyside. Because of this, many other brands use the name in their branding. I think uh, Glenlivet used to describe anything made in the Highlands at one point of its illicit past. Uh, the fame of the whisky it was made here was known and it does identify it. It's quite a small area, uh, the Glenlivet, the Livet River, which is below us here. It's only about a, a few miles up to its source and this is the area. Very remote, but that was its attraction, made high quality whisky, which hopefully it still does. Yeah, well, it's been good so far. <laughs> Although I must say I'm driving now, but yeah, it's been great. Um, so how to go right back to the start of your career, you've worked in the whiskey industry your whole career, is that right? Yes, uh, just pure accident as, as these things. Left school, didn't know what to do. Um, I'd, I was going to embark in the uh, naval career, either with the merchant or the royal, I didn't get in. And in that interim, when leaving school, I got a job showing the visitors around a neighbouring distillery. Uh, because in the 70s, uh, tourism was very in its infancy. For years, the distilleries would only show folk round, maybe trade visits, but it was opening up because more folk were coming to the area. And then the whiskey trail was started. Um, and that was to encourage folk into the area from heading up to the Highlands or heading out to Aberdeenshire to the castles, to the castle trail. And that was to encourage tourism within this part of the country. And also uh, now it's such an important part. Uh, and as you can see, the investment that's been made in the refurbishment of our visitor centre, which is important because uh, this is the home of the brand. Glenlivet can only be made in this spot. So uh, a, a good number of folk make their way here to see to see where it's made mm. it's like visiting your fam- favorite vineyard or things like that yeah. do a taste and learn a bit about whiskey making progress or the history uh, and see see what it is it makes scotch whiskey mm-hmm. and so you went from tour guide somewhere else and i went into production uh, yeah. yeah and then what you we up to i worked yes Master that's Stone. basically it yeah yeah uh, uh, we were looking at the casks, we were speaking about the casks. I worked in the cooperage uh, and did every department and distillery. And as the, uh, maybe moved now and again, I started my, uh, I joined the Glenlivet Distillers in 1979. I lived in sight for a couple of years here, uh, but as things moved about and companies changed, uh, I've been part of it for quite a while now. So what does your day-to-day look like? So what, what is a master distiller's job like? Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Drinking whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about the last thing it would do. Uh, 
the, the beauty of uh, a master distiller is you can take your work home with you at night. Uh, but no, it, it, during the day it's 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 confined to nosing. But it's all aspects of making whiskey, from the procurement of the grains right through to making the whiskey, and then the cask selection. But the cask selection will be done by the team who are responsible for that. It's, a, it's quite a big operation. This. Uh, the master distiller role that I occupy now is r more a ceremonial uh, uh, role uh, uh, as I've stepped back from the day-to-day -day production. But that, the teams are doing all that things. But the thing I learned early on, it's all about quality. It's all about having uh, the knowledge and belief to ensure that consistency of style. But the beauty in the last few years is that we've seen so many different expressions which has allowed us to play with flavours and the team. Uh, that's been great fun along the line. Yeah. And building up. Uh, but it used to be, when I joined the industry, 12-year-old Glenlivet it was considered the oldest whiskey about. And that. Now we've whiskies, well, with the 50-year-old, etc. Whiskies all up, and all up to that range of whiskies in different styles. So very much different, but quality whiskey. Mm -hmm. And if you, so we found out on the tour that Glenlivet was one of the first to sort of um, use different kind of casks. Um, and is that, how do you, how important do you think it is now that people can sort of go wine cask, port cask, you know, that type of thing? Do you think it's kind of helping evolve whiskey? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's broadening it out. Uh, it's also trying to take its, you know, it was seen for an era, an era as an old man's drink. Uh, we spoke about this earlier that we were, why would we miss all these different consumers? And also I noticed that certain markets like certain styles of the whiskey and it'll do well in certain countries. And that's things, uh, and the most important person to les listen to is your customers. What's your customers looking for? What are they asking for? And that is often fed down to the teams who make it. Now, it's a very traditional spirit. We we will make big play that this whiskey is as it was made by George Smith. And that's undoubtedly true. But there is all these different changes because the, the cask maturation plays such an important part of it. A lot of the science that we've learned We've, we don't understand. We don't know why Glenlivet has made tastes like this. I, I've lost track of the amount of folk that say they make a Glenlivet style somewhere else. But the magic never just travels that much. Is it magic? I'm sure it's science, but there's a lot of science that we still don't understand. But we understand a lot. It, we were telling the story where forebearers would leave notes and their stock records, oh, I'm not too sure of this or something like that. But we maybe go back and try and understand what was wrong with that and maybe play with it. So but it's fascinating. But it's a demand. It's led by the consumers as well. And also just having the, what is it, the innovation within the teams to look at that all the time. But I just sometimes just like to sit with a, that, say, the 12-year-old, just enjoy it for that style, for, for that. But that doesn't rule out that I will go and taste something else later because it suits my palate at that time. I always say to folk, revisit Glenlivet, go back and look at the complexity of style, etc. Very approachable, but very complex. And that style of whiskey. Yeah. And were you always into whiskey before you joined the industry? Joined the whiskey industry. Yeah. 
was I always in whiskey? That's a good question. I was aware of whiskey. Uh, grandfather and my uncle's farm, my cousin still farms. My cousin, who's uh, also supplies grain into the distillery, is the the uh, was it the oh the was it the Bar- oh the, the cooperative the, co- the, the Murray and Bamp Farmers yeah. Group. So my he's he's uh, ten miles down the road there, and he grows for that group. So we were aware, and he's beside two distilleries, so was aware of distilling, where my father was a policeman in Burghead who built a big Maltons in the 60s the visitor centre Glenlivet it was part of that making the Maltings larger and also growing the grain up here uh, at that time the industry was growing they were needing more grain and Maltings so I was aware of these things but never uh, looked at it as a career and it's something I think is fascinating now that the the story companies are going out and speaking to the, the folk at school and saying, look, there is a career here. This is the style of types of jobs that we have in the industry. I think that's a great thing. That was never done when I was at school. Yeah. You know, that's a distillery. It's that's a distillery. Yeah, it's yeah. what it is. <laughs> it's a distillery. Folk work there. But that, that has more thought now. Yeah. Yeah, it's good because you'll get more people coming in, I suppose, different people to the Absolutely, ER. because we were recruiting against the oil industry at one point and they were off. We were noticing uh, some of the colleagues and the other companies because we work quite collectively in our own interests, you know, the, the groups go together. And they said that, look at that, that's the oil folk looking at uh, young folk to for a career in this. So we offer apprenticeships, engine nearing electrical apprentices you can join the, the distillery teams there's, there's various schemes within and many many of the the, the staff are uh, graduates but maybe coming back to the roots in a sense and the Glenlivet's done some work with Historic Scotland to sort of plot out the different smugglers routes here and earlier today we went on a walk up to one of them and it's quite well advertised like we arrows nice walk what was it you know you've talked us through all it was really interesting have you found out something that you thought wow i didn't know that or what is a really interesting part of that kind of um research yes uh, well it's 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 called the pioneering spirit and it's a it's a collaboration between uh, the Glenlivet Distillery and the National Trust of Scotland. Uh, the original distillery site that we visited, which is probably rooted in the illicit past, was actually checked by the company a way back, oh, maybe in the 1990s. And when our company decided to do the collaboration, I said to one of the archaeologists, I says, oh, there were some folk dug this place up years ago. And he says, I was, I was the young archaeologist. <laughs> and that has led us to explore probably our roots in the sense of that romantic story we always tell. It's actually rooted in Scotland's social history. It's a history. It's probably romanticised and spoken about. Because we'll all love the, the stories of the cunning of the distillers against the customs excise. It was a more complex thing in that. Uh, in the development of this area, whiskey was forced underground. But what I probably didn't realise, I realised it was an important illicit industry, but I didn't realise the scale of it. National Trust and all the properties, some of them as landowners, have found quite a lot of... Uh, Route, and yet we can trace that route through 
to uh, the Marlodge estate where there's a number of illicit stills that they've been digging. I've been in some of the Torridon excavations, which is fascinating. It probably shows me how connected everything was. And this was an industry that grew and grew because quality whisky production was forced underground. But it was still sitting with its native roots of where it had gone. It wasn't illegal to make whisky for your for your own uses until the late 18th century. But then this, this reform of taxation created this lawless era. And I think there was concerns about the lawless era. And also, they were missing uh, all this good revenue if they taxed it correctly. It starts with William Pitt, who understood it. And they reformed taxation and that. But in the intervening 40 years, it was a lawless time. And that's why it it became famous in these areas. But such a remote area, but that was its secret. And then it was smuggled out to all parts of, of the country. Including to the king at the time. The King George IV in 1822 in his royal visit asked for the real Glenlivet or the, the legal distillery hadn't been established, so it was uh, <laughs> illicit whiskey. I th I always think it's fascinating. Prince Charles asking for something that was it, it's illegal nowadays. Imagine, imagine your headline in the Scotsman uh, <laughs> yeah. with that. So uh, it's it fascinating. But the landowners knew of its importance in the area, and then as they were improving their estates, I think they were concerned of the lawless time, and they wanted to take the control back, in a sense. So it leads to that. And I think this uh, pioneering spirit in the National Trust is beginning to open up little bits of that. But it shows how the fabric in all the areas is, so it's in interconnected. Mm -hmm. but I, marvel at, I marvel at this because it, it shows you how famous Glenlivet had became within it an illegal industry. Mm -hmm. And also, trying to think back was, it probably gave much needed revenue to these remote poorer areas, or is it poorer areas? Well, I do in an area with massive hardship, because today is, is, is summer. <laughs> there's, there's usually four weathers in one day at Glenlivet, and it's usually most mainly winter. But uh, no, it's a, it's quite fascinating. It's high up, as you can see. So yeah. yeah, yeah. And you can find out more about like the Glenlivet story at the New Visitor Centre. Have you? Is this the fir first have you seen it today, or have you sort of been aware of? No, all it's not the first time I've seen it. <laughs> no, I, yeah. but I've seen it in all its concept, and I think it's probably been today to me like uh, watching a film. Mm -hmm. I'm, I had I had parts in it and maybe asked advice in certain terminologies and seeing it together. I think it's uh, it's it's great to see an upgrade of the visitor centre uh, and trying to show what it is that makes the Glenlivet and uh, part of it. So, um, so I'm just going to ask you a couple of sort of quick fire questions. Well, there's. There's three, there's three lots of them, but something someone asked me, in fact, it was Kevin who used to manage the Craigellachie Hotel asked me this, and I think about it all the time. Who would you share a quake with? Oh, living or dead? It doesn't matter. Definitely George Smith. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I, t I take George Smith is to ask him what he was doing, what certain things he did that we knew he did certain things. Uh, he... 
I think it's I think it's one of the newspaper writes when he builds the distillery here. He speaks about taking the exact same method of running the pot stills as the original distillery to this distillery. The stills in the Glenlivet are run the same way today as they were in George Smith's day, despite advances in technique and technology. I asked Alan what his three preferred desert island whisky choices would be. His first choice was, of course, the 18-year-old Glenlivet. But when tasked with choosing non-Glenlivet whiskies, here is what he chose. I'd probably take a peaty whisky with me, maybe from... I should... I might take a Talisker or something like that with me. Uh, again, because it's West Coast, it's quite different from the Speyside. Uh you know this, I might even take an Irish pot still whiskey, maybe like uh, the Middleton Rhea uh, with me. If I, I was forced to take another two, that's a two <laughs> I maybe take. Uh, it's, it's, always, it's always fascinating. As distillers, we look at other distillers' products just to understand and look at things and maybe taste, see how flavours are, are created. Yeah. And it's amazing how different it is in different places. I mean, we're sitting yeah. here and there's distilleries all around us and yeah. all such different whiskies. Well, the company has two, three distilleries within nine miles of here. One's called Tormor, beautiful distillery, oh, yeah, yeah, built yeah. in the 1950s. But uh, at the time, American money makes something so different from here. I think they used the word Glenlivet in their title in the early days. And then we have the Braze distillery, Breval and Altnavanya down the Glen, and they were designed to make uh, Speyside-style whisky for blending purposes. But within their own cells, they are marvellous single malts, but different from the Eagle and Livet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tom de just a few miles on the Livet, has similarities to the Eagle and Livet, but it's, it's got its own character as well. Nice. And just quickly to go to food, this is a quick fire question, quick fire round, five questions all about food. Um, so whenever I'm hungry, I think of? I think of, oh jeepers, I, if I'm all hungry, I'm, I'll love a piece of cheese Yep. with my whiskey. <laughs> Comfort food for me is? Oh, chocolate. A nice piece of dark chocolate. With your whiskey. Uh, with a sherry matured whiskey. <laughs> Uh, my favourite childhood dessert is? Oh, Glasgow Jock. It was uh, raspberry jam and a pastry. Oh, nice. It was like a... Like a roly-poly almost. Like a roly-poly, that's yeah. it. Glasgow Jock, we called it. Oh. <laughs> when you smelt it, you know. Oh, <laughs> um, my food heaven is? When my wife makes something, I always say that's my favourite. You know, just curry uh, good books. As you can see, I'm not a great cook myself, but a lovely steak. Nice. And my food hell is? Oh, uh, certain fish. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I was brought up beside the seaside. Uh, and uh, I have been eating more fish in recent years because of the health benefits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope my uh, fishmonger's not here now. <laughs> um, well, is there anything else that you'd like to add about just in whiskey, the gone live it, and the new experience? Eh, what I often find uh, uh, over the years, I think education is very important in it. Uh, everybody always gets a shock when I add water to my whiskey. It's the way I like to drink it. I like it. I maybe like to cut it with a bit of water. Uh, I think it releases the freshness. There's no right way or wrong way to drink whiskey. I 
feel that some folk maybe be put off with intimidation about knowledge and that. But this, and also folk will say, oh, I don't like whiskey. But we'll always ask, what is the flavour you don't like? Explain, oh, it's a whiskey. Well, the whiskey's made up of 500, 600 different flavours. So what is it, the flavour you don't like? And there is a whiskey that will suit you. Uh, I often use Scarpa from the group for folk in an introductory sort of style of whiskey. But uh, I think what it is we notice that folk are open to different flavours now. And yes, taste all the different flavours, come back and retaste a little bit, and you'll see the complexity of it and the style of it. So uh, that's the thing. But always enjoy it and always have a bit of fun with whiskey as well. Yeah, that's good advice. Thank you very much and thank, thank you. you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Over Zoom, I chatted to Ian Allen about the wider topic of whiskey tourism, how it has grown over the years and what part the malt whiskey tool has played in this. Ian also recalls his recent holiday time at home in Murray and Speyside and we discuss experimental casks. Hi Ian. Hi Rosan, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yes, good, good. So for anyone that doesn't already know, can you sort of just explain what is the Malt Whiskey Trail? Yeah, so the Malt Whiskey Trail is a collective of um, distilleries and also the cooperage, uh, whose the, the, the core aim is to promote the Speyside, Murray Speyside region in an effort to, to bring more people within the area. And hopefully not only does it benefit the individual partner distillery members, but other um, establishments, tourism uh, spaces within that region. And was it when was it launched? Has it been like a long standing thing or is it quite new? Uh, well, the Whiskey Trail has been on the go since the 1980s. Uh, it's been around for quite some time. In fact, Glen Murray is actually the most uh, recent member. We, we joined back in 2004. Uh, so it's been a pretty settled group of people for a number of years. And have you found, I mean, you know, you guys have just joined recently, as you said, but have you have you found that it's helped boost um, whiskey and tourism as, as like a hand-in-hand thing? Yeah, it's, it's always hard to, you know, get the, the exact tangible benefits. It's not, it's a difficult thing to get a black and white baseline figure as to kind of what may, you know, what ticks within the malt whiskey trail. For us as a distillery, certainly because we are the most recent members, you know, we've kind of got a little bit more uh, black and white on the figures. We saw a huge uh, growth on the number of people coming in. And a lot of that's down to that um, iconic, famous brown signage that if anybody's ever been up into Speyside, it's it's the first thing that greets you with, with the arrows directing visitors from one uh, distillery to the next when you're in the area. And so Speyside is home to a large number of uh, distilleries. Um, and my previous guest, Alan Winchester at the Glenlivet, spoke a little bit about, you know, illicit distilling. But do you, just like a kind of broader sense, like, is it is that the main reason that there's so many dist- whiskey distilleries in Speyside? Was it this sort of illegal smuggling and distilling? Yeah, we don't have that history or background um, from Glen Murray perspective, but certainly a lot of the surviving distilleries within Speyside had that history and that background of illicit distilling um, and just that ability to hide up in the hills. Because if anybody's been to Speyside, 
you know, a lot of the distilleries you're looking to explore, but they're not on a main thoroughfare. You you have to kind of go out your way to discover a lot of them. Um, we're, we're very lucky here at Glenmurray. We're in the town of Elgin, but some of them are tucked up in the hills, which is a lot of their beauty as well. So. Yeah, and um, we also discussed the, uh, the the founder of the Glenlivet was one of the first to get a license and make it legal, and it was all a bit sort of uh, dodgy at the time. Um, would Would you say, like, from your your knowledge and experience, that 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 was the start of like distilling being, you know, legal in Speyside, and everyone then had to follow suit? You know, you guys, you're saying you don't have that kind of history, so like, what what's your knowledge of that kind of side of things? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a history of distilling I really kind of studied too closely. Um, but, but uh, you know, certainly anything we've looked at from a Glen Murray perspective, you kind of tend to find that, uh, and I can say this being Speyside born and bred, that we're a kind of crafty bunch here in Speyside. Uh, I look at the research, the history of Glen Murray, and a lot of what you find in our history is um, people getting taken to court for lock-ins and things like that. So, uh, yeah, we, we like to uh, bend the rules and regulations, but to become, you know, as as the process of distilling and as the industry of Scotch whisky became more refined, more global, there there had to be more structure and legalisation around what we did. We couldn't keep doing what we were doing. The government likes their cap. They like their duties. So, so we, we make sure they get their share. What other distilleries are on the Malt Whisky Trail? So you've got Cardew, um, you mentioned the Speyside Cooperage as well. So there was not a distillery, an integral part of the Scotch whisky industry. Glenlivet, uh, you've spoken to uh, Dallas too, not a producing distillery, a historical distillery. Uh, great to see, you know, because a lot of the distilleries have developed and changed over the years. So it's a great one to pop in to see a more kind of traditional approach. Glen Murray, obviously, um, Glen Grant as well, Glen Fiddich. Uh, Strathila and Ben will make, uh, make up the, the, the grouping as it stands. Uh, we're always open to more partner members and there may be some changes to that in the, the foreseeable future. Uh, distilleries have to reach a certain criteria with regards to um, you know, the quality Visit Scotland accreditations before they become partner members. So um, you know, the, the, the Malt Whiskey Trail, I think it's a, a mark and standard of quality that you'll get a good experience, regardless of whichever distillery or um, cooperage you keep up into. And you've said as well that you've since joined and you've seen like a huge difference. But do you do you think whiskey and tourism has become much more popular over the years anyway? Like obviously the trail is well established, but people would be coming to Scotland for whiskey over the last few years anyway. And absolutely. You know, whiskey tourism, you know, it's coming up to 20 years I've been involved in whiskey tourism. Um, in, in a whiskey terms, 20 years is a massive kind of period of time, but and what's changed within whiskey and tourism in that period of time, it's it's night and day. Uh, you know, again, speaking from a Glen Murray perspective, you know, just to put in context with regards numbers, when I first started here, we were we were welcoming around about four thousand visitors. Uh, prior to lockdown and COVID and everything else, we were welcoming and looking to extend upon twenty four thousand visitors. So it's it's a massive change. Um, the kind of visitor that's coming to us has changed, they're far more knowledgeable, they're far more whiskey savvy, um, and they kind of know what they're, they're looking for and what they're looking to do. So as, as distilleries, it, it sets us a challenge 
to keep um, our experiences um, interesting, different, changing, developing. I know we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes. You know, whilst COVID has meant that we've had to shut our doors, it hasn't meant we've been sitting on our hands. If we look at some of our partner members, you've spoken to Glenn Livett already, you know, their investment in their new refurbishment, Cardu, have made uh, massive changes to their experiences as well. Where I'm sitting just now, Glenn Murray, we have opened our new tasting room and um, kind of blending lab that we have just behind me. Uh, and other distilleries such as Ben Romick, they haven't even reopened yet. They are, they are refurbing their uh, situation as well. So it's exciting times. You know, it's, uh, COVID maybe wasn't the, the exact catalyst, but it certainly spurred on and gave the opportunity uh, to make changes that are quite difficult to do when you're opening and operating to the public. Yeah, it definitely seems like an exciting time. Like between all that and, you know, Diageo was investing in, in the Johnny Walker experience and it just seems to be this huge like boom time for whiskey just now, which is nice to see. Yeah, absolutely. We, we were looking in, in the office this morning at pictures of the new Diageo experience down in uh, Edinburgh and it looks amazing. You know, I can't wait to go and visit it. Um, and, you know, we can see that as competition within the industry, but I think, you know, the Scotch whiskey industry is, is a collaborative industry at the best of times. I think the Malt Whiskey Trail is a great example of that. And, you know, if, if things like that can attract people into Scotland, you know, Edinburgh is a starting point. It's a hub for people and we know they kind of move out from there. We're not a huge country. You know, it, it doesn't take you two or three days to drive across Edinburgh. You know, you can drive up to Speyside in, in a little over four hours, get the train up or whatever. The, the links are great for, for Speyside from the Central Belt, whether you're Glasgow, Edinburgh. And you can, you know, stretch out from there. Moving up the North Coast 500 and everything, it, it's it's a great um, you know, boom for the industry to see things like that investment within um, within whiskey, but ultimately within tourism as well. And it's nice to know that you're all you know it's competition, but you all kind of work together as well. So like you're excited to go and see other distilleries and see what's happening because it's it's pretty collaborative industry, isn't it? It is, yeah. As I say, the, the Malt Whiskey Trail is a perfect example of that. You know, these are, you know, on the face of things, we're competing brands in any other industry. You know, there's not too many that will get together, sit around a table. You know, how do we get people to come to you? How do we get people to come to us? And, and you know, what are you doing? Sharing best practice and everything like that. And that can only make our offering better um, as an industry and as individual sites as well. Did I ask you Desert Island Rams before? I think I probably did. <laughs> I, I think maybe on one of them. Um, I, I was I was weaned on cherry cask whiskies, so anything big and sherried. Uh, I'll, I'll you know stepping away from Glen Murray, which is my obvious choice. Um, I do I do love a, a, a kind of Glendronic or a McAllen's, you know these old school big big sherry hitters. I do love and just to keep my bosses happy, you know Glen Murray and sherry is a fantastic whisky as well. And I can say that hand on heart also. So uh, yeah, big anything sherried, and I'm a sucker for it. So that's my my choice. I can also say hand on heart, Glen Murray and sherry is amazing because thanks to you, I got the uh, 1998 PX cask. That's yep. my favourite whiskey. So good. <laughs> it is. It's sadly, it's sadly one of those limited editions which has left the building now. Uh, one which I do miss. Uh, if I was to if it was to pick my favourite all time Glen Murray, we did a 1994 sherry cask back in 2016, I think off the top of my head. 
um, you occasionally see it pop up at auction sites, but to this day, that's um, just a great example of Glen Murray and Sherry and a great example of a Glen Murray um, single cask limited edition cask strength, which some people, a lot of people haven't tried before. A lot of people know us as the classic, the one you find in your supermarkets. And again, you know, part of the reason we have the visitor center here is we can show you the, the wide and varied range that we now do. Um, it's only fairly recently, and again, in whiskey terms, in the past 10 years that we've had that range and that, that um, selection that we're able to, to showcase to people. And was it you guys that did the cider cask? We did, yes. That, 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 that was the controversial one. Uh, yeah, we kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit. And that's been something, you know, a long part of Glen Murray's history is about experimentation around about cask styles. Uh, and Cider Cask was one where the um, the whiskey authorities, the Scotch Whiskey Association, decided we were maybe being a little bit too experimental, pushing the boundaries that little bit too far. So um, whilst we were allowed to sell what we'd released, um, Cider has been put in the back burner. So we hope maybe the guidelines change. We've got a couple of casks still sitting there just in case that day may come. So fingers crossed. Because they are, they're getting more relaxed, aren't they? Because, you know, there's lots of different casts being used now. Like people are, you know, bringing out port pipes and, you know, Madeira, you guys have done things like that. So it, do you see it being more relaxed in the future and you could maybe bring that back or is it sort of wishful thinking? I mean, well, there was changes the year that um, we got pulled up for cider cask. There was a relaxation around about drinks such as uh, tequila and mezcal. Um, I think actually Calvados was permitted in the same year that um, our cider cask got pulled up. So they're, they're relaxing their approach on apple spirits. So we, we hope that they'll relax their approach with apple and other drinks as well. So we'll see. But yeah, I think it's, you know, we, we look across the board, you know, whiskey has, has become a, a global drink, not in the sense that Scotch whiskey has stretched globally. That's been the case for a number of years. But what I mean by that is you're getting distilleries around the world popping up, you know, Japan being the most famous region recently. Um, but, you know, we, you've got um, brands in Sweden and Belgium and Germany, the US and their craft distilling approach has been a bit of an explosion as well. And because they're not as restricted, they are got that freedom a little bit more to be experimental. So um, whilst whilst we don't want to you know, allow carte blanche people just to go and do all kinds of crazy stuff, I think the, the SWA probably are looking at that and thinking that we maybe need to relax a little bit so we can be equally as um, competitive with regards to experimentation. But who knows? We'll, we'll see. Um, I'd like to see it, but... But as I say, not carte blanche, you know, relax it a little bit at a time and see how things work out. Nice, yeah, we'll see. Be good. Um, so is there anything else you would want to add sort of about whiskey tourism or the Malt Whiskey Trail? Well, I just, you know, the Malt Whiskey Trail is pretty much open for business now. Um, so obviously there are restrictions with regards to international travel. So for those of you uh, out with the UK, uh, we hope to see you back very soon once things start to relax. Um, for those folk in the UK kind of, who have not had the opportunity to come up, you know, I highly recommend it. Um, it's you know, I I had two weeks off um, just recently, and obviously didn't get the opportunity to travel like we'd normally do. So spent it locally, um, and was amazed at just what we have now on our doorsteps. And, and whilst the malt whiskey trail is about single malt whiskey and whiskey in general. 
there is so much more to offer. Um, just to kind of set a scene, just a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in 26 degrees on the beachfront having a fantastic uh, lobster tail sub whilst watching some dolphins playing in the Murray Coast. And it was an amazing experience. And, and that's from somebody who lives here. It's like, well, this is something which I think people can enjoy. Uh, so it's not all about whiskey. There's some great food places, accommodation as well, um, and great coastline golf courses, if that's your thing as well, and the odd castle or two. So we've got we've got Scotland in miniature. I know a lot of people claim to have that, uh, but I think you know Murray just offers something a little bit special with the icing on the cake being some of the finest single malts in the world available to enjoy while you're visiting. Yeah, it's good. And I can confirm it is a very nice drive. I've done it often and it's lovely. <laughs> it is. It's, it's a great, great location. It's, it's one of those places... You don't mind sitting in your car. You get to see such great scenery whizzing by as you're driving along as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, we have a lot to offer. And hopefully people will um, take the opportunity when not able to travel internationally that they'll um, come up to Speyside and, and see what's going on. Fingers crossed for another heat wave as well. well the <laughs> sun is starting to creep through here. It's been a little bit grey today, but it's starting to reappear. So. Thanks very much for your time, Ian, and we'll hopefully see you soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to Alan and Ian for being my guests, and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Scran is Laudable Production that's hosted and co-produced by me, Ros and Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton. 